Hey everyone, welcome to the Belena Podcast, episode 4. In this episode, we feature Chris R. Chapman, software development coach at Derailleur Consulting. He'll be interviewed by Alex Marinos, founder and CEO of Belena. I'm Andrew Nim, your producer. In this chat, Chris and Alex talk about how to design a better operating system for organizations of the future, how systems thinking can help any new leader out there, and what's next for agile and lean practices. Check it out. Hey, Alex. Good to uh, good to have you on the uh, the Milena podcast. Um, so, for everybody who's uh, is watching us from 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 home now, um, we've got uh, Chris Chapman, who is uh, someone I've uh, I met by chance, <laughs> or or by serendipity, perhaps uh, on on on. Um, on the on the social media, uh, uh, I guess I'll, I'll say like a little bit about our the story of how we met because it's probably going to be relevant to our conversation. So I um, I recently published uh, work we've been doing from from the team, uh, Belena, um, a, a a document about how Belena itself uh, operates internally. At least our first crack at sort of describing it on on a high level, and I just kind of put it out on social media. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to take a chance. I'm just, I'm going to leave comments open. Right, completely not like kind of expecting that the trolls would descend at some point, but I was like, look, I'm going to keep an eye on it, and when they do, I'm just going to shut down the comments. But you never know, right? Who might see this and who might start making some really clever comments. And so I put this up, and I think I went away for an hour or so, and I came back, and what do I see? Um, I see Chris basically just making like spot on point after spot on point. I was like, wait, wait, who's <laughs> who's this guy? I got to talk to him. Um, so, so we, uh, we connected and we had a, a great conversation. Then we, we, we basically were like, well, this was fantastic as a podcast if we had recorded it. Uh, mm. yep. <laughs> we did it. um, so this is, uh, this is kind of like a, the, the, the second, the second, uh, run of it, though, uh, I mean, not really. Um, but I'm sure we'll, we'll, it, it's not going to be like the first one. It's going to be like this one. Uh, I'm sure we're going to find amazing things to talk about. So um, that's the, um, the 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 long story short from 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 my point of view. But maybe you want to tell us a little bit more about uh, about your background. You know how how your life ended up with <laughs> comments on a Google Doc uh, and and beyond. Life is a bizarre series of serendipitous conversations. You never know who you're going to run into. So it's it's by pure happenstance, I see what you're talking about with respect to your conversations about Robert Malone. And I'm following mm -hmm. you and I'm, I'm really enjoying your threads. And I'm like, wow, this is really great uh, material. And then you put that link up for uh, for the doc. And I just had to, to jump in because I was seeing some stuff that was directly related to what I do. So perhaps I should introduce myself to your yeah. to your audience. Yeah, yeah. So I'm Chris Chapman. I'm a uh, software development coach. So what I do is I help teams and managers and organizations learn how to deliver software using an agile uh, mindset that you know, values, principles, techniques. So I understand the, the ins and outs of Scrum, Kanban, Lean. I've been doing this for nigh on 15, 18 years, like since the dawn of it all. And in the last, I would say, eight years or so, I've shifted a lot of my practice, which is called Derailleur Consulting. I'm here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Um, I've shifted a lot of my practice to focusing on helping leadership make more sense out of what's going on. So that took me into the world of uh, applied systems thinking. 
especially when it comes to how organizations work and how they are designed and some of the philosophy and values. So some thinkers that are really um, important to me or have been a big influence on me have been uh, W. Edward Stemming, uh, Dr. Russell Acoff, uh, Ellie Goldratt, um, Peter Schultes, um, many others that, that fit this, you know, kind of this gestalt or medium. And so I try to fit all of this together and come up with ideas and strategies about how to take what they were talking about and make it applicable in our world. Uh, mm-hmm. So when I saw, when I saw what you were writing on the doc with the uh, you know the nascent operating system for what you're envisioning with uh, Balana, I was like, wow, this is really interesting because I was seeing the very beginnings of what looked like system flow diagrams, and you were um, encapsulating how the interactions worked. And I've not seen that. That's what intrigued me. And that's why I started commenting almost immediately. I'm like, oh, did you think about, you know, influences with what Acoff was saying here? Or, you know, what, you know your philosophy on how Deming might look at this here? Or, you know, uh, I think I mentioned inverse Conway as, as a potential uh, mechanism for designing how your, flow, how your teams are going to uh, design architecture by reorienting themselves. So I was really fascinated. I couldn't hold back. I was like, this is too cool. So, yeah, I mean, this is kind of a strange thing about social media. Uh, I hope we don't get derailed in that direction, but uh, <laughs> it's a comment I, I kind of have to make, which is that you, my, my hypothesis for sort of engaging is that if uh, I, I put out there something that is sort of unfiltered, right, that the, the, the era of sort of the, the, the curated sort of, you know, sterilized uh, stream is over and, and, and the era of, you know, things that are, personal and kind of real is, 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 is coming, you know, like that's why podcasting works. That's why Substack works. People are kind of done with this kind of like artificial sort of corporate construct, like, like you know, you already turn on, you see CNBC and that's like supposed to be mean something, but what does it, you know, what does it mean? So that was my, my hypothesis for sort of engaging and explicitly I have been saying sort of, I, you know, there's a lot of people that you know I'm having conversations with, and you know they're really brilliant and like very multifaceted kind of folks. That they're not what you might expect. Sort of, I, I you know I'd be I'd be uh, talking to. It was really surprising, even even to me, like coming in with that. Um, so so, but even so, I have to say, like um, the the kind of um, familiarity to the concepts that we're talking about that 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 we had, uh, we 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 kind of exactly sort of serendipitously uh locked into was fascinating to me mostly because the it seems that the paths we followed are uh very different right so we we, we we've got different uh influence uh from like different thinkers we've, we've been reading and different maybe motivating paradigms parallel for sure right like it's it's still about business it's still about management it's still about organizations but from from maybe different uh sort of you know angles um and yet we we seem to have we seem to understand each other, I think readily, uh, which has fascinated me. So um you mentioned uh, deming and and i'm i'm uh, um, I'm wondering what um, you you were kind of saying uh, you you're trying to apply those ideas to today's sort of context, right? Um, mm-hmm. So what do you think the the problem how would you articulate the problem? Right. How would you articulate, you know, what, what would uh, those ideas be trying to address? So I can tell you from my perspective, working with agile practices and techniques, I started as a software developer. 
And then I picked up a lot of these practices as black arts on the streets because nobody was teaching them. You had to go and find them out on a website, very arcane and, you know, some obscure books. And what I began to, um, what I began to see was I was thinking as this was coming along, gosh, like all these guys seem to have this figured out. All I have to do is improve how we work at the delivery side and everything is going to, you know, there's going to be a, a great manifestation of change. It's going to just be a wellspring. It'll organically grow. And I worked under that delusion for a very, very long time, probably about a decade. Um, you know, and I saw how it didn't work. The, the last company that I worked for was Microsoft. I worked in their consulting services uh, division, mm -hmm. and, you know, around 2008, 2010. In fact, I even onboarded in Seattle. Um, so I'm familiar, very familiar with, with, with the town and, and Redmond campus. Um, but what I began to see was that was not quite working right. It was beginning to break down. And then I, when I started moving into, like in 2010, I founded my own consultancy and I started working, um, trying to bring these ideas forward and try to get them even more acceptance. I began to realize I was, was running into some barriers. Things weren't working. It seemed that I'd work and coach a team and take my hands away and it, would, it was like a sandcastle would fall. And I'm like, right. well, this doesn't seem right. Why is this going wrong? And so it took me a few more years to realize that what we were doing was trying to ameliorate two incompatible systems. So largely we've got all the trappings that you know have been around for probably a century or more with respect to how we think uh, organizations should be structured and managed. And then we've got the ideals that we have a very nimble, agile organizations that are able to pivot and adapt and take in new inputs, use empirical planning, all of these different ideas on how to be able to you know, get faster feedback loops working and you immediately run into problems. So my, my profession, my industry is a, a rather cynical perspective of it is trying to get these two um, to fit, but they don't. So you end up, uh, you know, the, the buzzwords that we use is we're in the business of transformations, but there are two kinds of transformations. There's the cynical one, which predominates the industry where we think we just tell teams what to do. We tell managers how they've got to adopt these new patterns and practices, and it's very expensive and it doesn't work. Or you have sincere ones, which are more organic, which begin with not the teams changing, but the leadership and working with their leadership teams and their management to try and figure out what are better patterns of communication, uh, better patterns of structure. How do we see the organization and manage it differently than what we've done in the past that makes this, this possible? So it goes away from this to, you know, how do we cooperate? So... You mentioned sort of the, the the leadership changing, right? Which is uh, like the, the 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 system you describe, sort of the, the the factors working together, or well, against each other, really. In in in, in that sense, um, make a lot of sense to me. And and this is kind of like an impedance mismatch, right? You're trying to to blend sort of oil and water, and not only is it oil and water, but like the oil is is sort of toxic to the water or something like, you know, the, the, the one, the, the, the directionality, you know, if these two things fight, like who will win is like predetermined, right? Yep. Uh, the one literally has direct command authority. So, you know, it's, it's, it's only going to go one way. Um, but I guess, so that the, the question as you correctly uh, identified it, obviously, um, is how do we fix the problem in the other, you know, kind of at the source, right? 
Um, so, so what kinds of patterns? So, let's say there's a leadership team and they they want to change. Like, what would they be even in for? Like, what what you know? You can you can make this as specific or generic as you as you want, I suppose. But it's like, what inspirations are they? Like, what does this look like, basically? Like, what uh, you know? A lot of a lot of transformation, I suppose, is about visualizing what you know, knowing what you're sort of trying to get to and then trying to get there. But I think a lot of management teams don't even have an alternative vision in their in their mind. So what might that what might that look like? Well, it doesn't have to look completely foreign or alien, right? So you could have some of the same departments that you've had before, but instead you start working towards thinking about what are the ways that I can improve my communication patterns? And um, you know, I, I'll give you an example. It's it's thinking much more um, much more what you are able to begin to influence to change right in front of you. And it necessitates a change in mindset, right? So you would begin to think that within a typical management structure, you are going to be pressing upon things like, how do I interpret feedback that I'm getting numerically or a target or a goal? And how are the ways that I'm beginning to parcel that out into the organization? And what are my expectations when I communicate that change? How is it actually going to be done? So there's a theory, and that's what underpins all this. Is uh, when I start an engagement with with a new uh, leadership team, I will ask each of them to tell me, "Can you express to me in a very simple way how do you predict the outcomes of your decisions in the organization?" This is where it all begins, and that's your theory of management. So in an old school way. Um, the theory of management is I'm able to control things. I have systems that control. I'm able to issue directives. People will follow the directives and the systems will respond accordingly. And this is where we get into, I think I mentioned in, in, on your doc as a comment, that Russ Acoff uh, looked at this. He said, what is the characteristic way that we teach management in the Western world is that we take something complex, we dissolve it into parts. We call those parts ironically divisions. And we expect that these parts will all work in isolation of each other. We can optimize the parts and optimize the whole. And I like the way he says, and that's completely false, um, because there are always <laughs> there are always interdependencies between the parts. And that's that's what bedevils things is being able to see the organization as a network of parts that no matter how you thought it looked on the org chart. There's an actual underground network that you're unaware of that's working in spite of you. And it, it was right. one of the one of the brilliant things that they taught us when they were onboarding, because um, I worked in the consulting services uh, division of, of Microsoft. Um, they taught us how to take an org chart and, and dissolve it into the actual pathway. So you begin to have conversations with people and they say, that's what they think. Now you make the real map, the political map, um, the how things get done map. And then that becomes your guide for figuring the organization out. So when we think about transformation, it's transformation that is, it's, um, it's moving away from the predominant and prevailing patterns that have gotten you perhaps quite well to this point. But if you're actually wanting to get beyond this point, they're going to be very insufficient because you're only going to be fighting the system from this point forward because you can't see it. And at this point, re-education needs to take place. So you 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 touched on something that's just really set my mind uh, traveling right now. So you said 
you know, uh, when an organization basically tries to analyze another organization, right, to accomplish something, like to, and I, and I think of like attack and defense, right? I think of the spike and the and the sort of the wall. Um, so when an organization is acting as a spike, um, they would um, model the other ones, right? They would make the sort of the the the, the real org chart, whatever. So this is something that's been baffling me for a long time. So I, I really want to see if you have an answer to this, right? Organizations okay. know this is that there is a difference between reality and you know the model, right? And yet they themselves have the model and tell themselves that the model is real. Like, how do they not? Yep. How does this this contradiction not sort of? I don't know. Like, what do they do with this knowledge? I guess facing internally, right? Or or maybe a slightly different way to ask the same questions. Why would they let themselves get manipulated that way when they you know they know how to manipulate others and yet the the same. They also know that the same door is open on their end. Well, I mean, it's familiar, right? We've been taught these patterns of thinking since we were kids. So it's just a natural progression and extension that we see the organization as this thing that we can comfortably build a model about, but we don't actually think about our thinking when it comes to that, right? <laughs> and yeah. and that's what astonishes me. Like a small story, um, Peter Senge, who wrote the book, The Fifth Discipline, in the mid 90s early 90s and it's about systems thinking and about the you know building the learning organization was his thesis and he gave a lecture one time where he said imagine for a moment that we could understand what animals can say to each other and we happen upon a stream and we see two brook trout what do you think they're talking about and he says damned if i know but they sure as hell ain't talking about the water and it was Right. You know, when I when I heard that, that is precisely the 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 moment that clicks. I think for for folks like in my profession, is that we're always helping leadership understand the water, the things that are that keep many of the things in suspension that you take for granted. We're acutely aware of because we can see it from the outside, and that's actually right. a, a critical critical part. You need to not all of this you're going to be able to do by yourself because when you're inside the system, it's very difficult to appreciate what you know all of this water, all of these invisible structures. So you need to have someone come in from uh, with a fresh perspective who isn't biased and is able to say, "This is what I'm able to see." You know, I've spent a couple of weeks. I've been observing how your departments work. And I can tell, you know, what is running this organization versus what you think is running it. Right. No. Yeah. That's that's a that's a it's a it's a fascinating sort of analogy to to thinking about thinking, right? Because yeah, we don't. There are things that are so uh, taken for granted on our own side. I mean, that that, that we sort of just don't. Um, we don't. We just don't model. We don't. We don't really. It, they don't enter our conscious sort of reasoning. Uh, uh, processes, so then they tend to get ignored sometimes disastrously. Uh, so it, it actually reminds me of um, the, uh, I'm, I'm trying not to mess up the name, which I probably will, but uh, fundamental attribution bias, I think it's, it's called, um, yeah. which is, um, you know, uh, for, for, our, for our listeners, um, the, the, the tendency that people have to blame when 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 and I do something right, and and somebody else does something, some 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 uh, violation of, of some norm, right? Like maybe I'm late to a meeting. I might myself uh, explain myself away as in like there was traffic, there was this, there was that, whatever. Uh, but when somebody else is late, I'm like, well, this person is clearly not not they're not responsible. They're not 
organized very well. They must be, must be, you know, I'm making all sorts of assumptions. So I'm not applying the same um, uh, criteria or, or, or the same, um, you know, extenuating circumstances to the other people as I am applying to myself, right? So, so it's kind of, it's reminds me, it's like, it's almost like it's a similar thing, but uh, inverted and, and scaled out to, to, to large companies. I don't know if this this is if this maps to to how you how you see that 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 problem or not. Yeah, no, you know, quite similar, quite similar. Yeah, it. I'm, I've got a couple of ideas that are you know as you're talking to, I'm I'm for, uh, cognating and formulating some some ideas as go well for it, go for it. based on uh, based on some of this conversation. Right? I gotta see if I can pull the. It, I, yeah. <laughs> this reminds this me of our last conversation. This is what are made of. Uh, uh, this is this. Yeah, like please feel free to well, sort of. We can we can go wherever uh, wherever you want. Yeah. So, I was thinking about some conversations that I've had with a mentor, mm -hmm. and learn you know with respect to thinking about thinking, and that's where I get a lot of these ideas. So his name he's. Uh, He's based out of uh, Southern California. His name is Dr. Bill Bellows. He used to be the deputy director of the Deming Institute. And that's where I got a lot of the original thinking about thinking about your thinking and how you choose to perceive things. And so as you're, as you're mentioning some of these ideas, it, you know, it occurs to me um, an example from a team I was working with. So I was approached a couple of years ago, an entirely remotely distributed organization I knew the CTO and he said, um, I need you to help out a new director. We've got problems with a couple of our teams. We're distributed across the US and Canada. We've got a lot of pressure on us. We think we're doing agile, but the team seemed to be falling apart. And I said, what's the basis of that? And he said, well, the director says he feels that the, the teams are not T-shaped enough. Uh, T-shaped. So they're not, what do you mean by that? And he says, well, they're not cooperating. They don't help each other out. They don't learn each other's skill sets. And so what I began to untangle was they, the, the real problem was predictability. You know, with respect to when you were saying is somebody early late. So when I, when I hear things like the word predictability, I'm like, okay, well, what did that actually mean in your context? And it turns out that they were continually overestimating their capability and they were always falling short and the, the customers, their customers are losing patience. They're like, why does the, why do the goalposts keep moving? And they said, there's gotta be something wrong. And so I, when I went to actually do an, uh, an analysis, um, I plotted their, um, their throughput. So throughput if, uh, for folks who are not familiar in software teams, it's how long it takes measured in days or hours for a piece of work to move from one part of the organization, uh, one part of the, the system to another. So it's got to go through, um, you know, specifications, uh, UX, UI, UX, it's going to go through dev, it's going to get a little bit of test, it's going to get um, deployed, and then we might have some UAT. And so how long did it take to go through that? And I was analyzing the flow and I said, well, actually, you're incredibly predictable. Your systems are designed perfectly to achieve the results they are obtaining. Uh, and I was able to demonstrate that. I plotted it on something called a process behavior chart and I was able to show you, you've got no issues here. You may not be happy with how this is working, but this is a consequence of how your patterns of interrelationships work because you're entirely remotely distributed, because your knowledge is not uniformly distributed, because you are still using very strong systems of control mechanisms on these teams, mm -hmm. while at the same time trying to say that they're agile, 
um, right. that's not that's not actually manifesting. So we're actually seeing some of these problems come back on themselves, and that's why you've got a larger systemic problem. And I said, who designed the teams? Who who uh, who staffed the teams? How was the hiring practices work? Why did you decide to stick QA right in probably the worst possible space and and just continually slam them and slam them and slam them and not help them? Um, right. This is. This is this is a reason why you're going to have this kind of systemic issue, the systemic problem. Does that kind of get to what you were? Am, am I am I pulling the right thread? It's 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 all in the same it's all in the same sort of quarter of um, organizations failing to model themselves, others. There's one more element I'm picking out from this, which is similar to something we said the other time, yeah, uh, and similar to something I've been I've been I've been ranting about recently, which is if you when I try to model a situation, right, like there will be comfortable explanations, very, very um, pleasing to my ego that will show up like they're idiots, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> they don't get it, right? The problem yeah. is that they don't get it or like, oh, they're slow. Oh, they're not cooperating. They're not teaching. They're more sophisticated way of saying they're not good enough, right? Yeah. Um, and to me, like when I reach that explanation, I've now made it a habit. It, it took me a very long time to 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 make this conscious, but it's it's I, I, I've gotten pretty decent at it. Um, of saying, don't stop here. Like this is a false a false ending, right? This yeah. doesn't make any sense, right? Like, and you see it like worldwide as well. When 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 people will say like, oh, you know, well, the problem with the other half of the country is that they're idiots, or you know, whatever. And 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 to me, like, whenever you reach that explanation, you know, it's 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 actually a, a, like good news in a way. Because you know something for sure, which is something about your understanding is broken. Um, there, you, there's some rat, <laughs> so there's a bad apple in your own model. Like that is such an unlikely uh, outcome. You you have a team of highly paid software engineers, and they're all incompetent. Like, okay, well that's unlikely, right? Let's let's throw that one away, but explore why we thought that <laughs> because yeah. that's interesting. <laughs> yeah. That 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 you know that's totally correct. So again, guidance that I give to to my managers when I when I talk to them is, um, your first port of call is not blaming the individual for not getting it right. The first port of call is how did I design these processes or how did I design this relationship where this right. is the problem that's manifesting. Um, so always look towards what you know what policies what procedures. You know, and there's a lot of other things. If you have a very poor personal relationship with your uh, subordinates or your or your team, you're not going to know or you're not going to be sensitive to when extrinsic factors are going to be interfering in their lives. So they could have stuff going on at home. Uh, they could have a parent who is ailing. Uh, they could have stress with maybe a sibling or maybe an in-law that you're not aware of, or there's another pressing issue. That's, uh, that deals with you know psychology of individuals and leadership is very scarce on the knowledge of psychology. I find that's what we do in coaching. Uh, we're brought in because we dabble in a lot of different areas of psychology, so we're able to use a number of different tools to begin to tease out how do people work together, and how do people um, collaborate, and what do we need to look out for uh, you know in individuals. So one thing that we're very aware of, or that we try to explain to to our uh, to our manager coaches is, do you understand the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation and how your words and your attitudes can begin to press upon people 
and invite the exact behaviors that you're trying to avoid. So you can actually, by your words and your mannerisms and how you treat people, you may say, well, I'm really dissatisfied with these guys getting their back up all the time. But the way that you, you're subtly sending cues uh, to them and not having a good relationship with them, you're getting that coming. You're, you're basically affirming that you're going to be in a feedback loop that's going to be bringing that behavior back on you. Um, so it, these, these things are not isolated. You've got to understand a little bit about systems. You've got to understand a little bit about psychology, how do people learn and variation, not, you know, just not only in the system itself, but, you know, between people, how do we, how do we right. make this work? So, so what you're saying is the managers are not T-shaped enough. Um, <laughs> well, they, 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 yeah, <laughs> they need, they, they need new, they need a new, they, they need a new theory. They just need a little bit of time and a little bit of knowledge. That's all they need. They just got to change. The, 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 what I find interesting is, is that, you know, that's such a repeated pattern that, I mean, at this, you know, at some point it stops being, you know, a coincidence, right? Where we have this um, situation where, you know, you have one discipline and they're really good at their discipline. Like they know yeah. all of the things about their discipline. Yeah. Um, but the solution to the hard problem within that discipline is not in, the, <laughs> in that discipline, right? Not because it. if it was, they would have solved it. Like, I mean, it's kind of, it kind of makes sense, right? If, it, if it's persistent, they're missing a tool somewhere. Um, yeah. Yet we see very little um, crossbreeding of, of expertise. Um, you know, there's always the gatekeeping, you know, well, are you an X or are you a Y? Uh, implying that I guess all X's should only think about X and Y's should only think about Y's or whatever. But it, it's, it's, I don't know how one can, um, can drive that. And, and again, I, I focus mostly on leadership because uh, I, in general, my, my experience is that people with um, just good sort of, you know, uh, people in, in, in teams have, a, have an innate broadness, but um, it's, it's when you sort of start to, to get, get very focused and uh, you might end up actually going up hierarchically, but you, uh, the narrowness doesn't, doesn't go away. Um, and, and I'm, I'm just wondering how, how do, it's, it's also kind of like exploration exploitation problem, right? Because you, when, when you start reading about X or Y, right? You don't know if that exploration will be exploitable. Like you don't know if you'll find something good, you know, you, you're going fishing, like, you know, and, and, and you got to be comfortable that nine out of 10 times what you'll find will not immediately apply. But so, so what, do you, is there any sort of practices that, that can help sort of solve that problem or, or, or just broaden out the, the, the horizons, I suppose, of, of, of uh, people and organizations? So, well, in, in what way specifically, what, what do you think of like how, how so, to, Go ahead. Sorry. For instance, you mentioned uh, you mentioned my, my, uh, sort of team leads not uh, having enough understanding of psychology, right? And I guess mm -hmm. the obvious uh, counter is like, why would they, <laughs> they are yeah. engineering leads? Right? Why would they know psychology? The, 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 it's, it's obvious why, but that, that's the, the the thing is like, why would they go out and learn things there if, to potentially find a specific thing they might need to know in this situation? Okay, well, it, it would largely come down to why are they in that job? So if you are looking to genuinely help people as a leader and as a manager, you need to know these things. And um, a while ago, I was, I was coaching a, a room full of like eight or nine senior managers, and I asked them to tell me why they got into the role. I wanted to baseline. 
And I said, just think about, go back to the time when you were just about to get the promotion, you've been angling for this. I want you to tell me what, what were you thinking and feeling at that particular point? And then we're going to go and jump ahead in time. And I want you to tell me, you know, what is it like now? What do you, what did you come to realize was the reality of management? And I've only had, it was funny in that, in that eight or nine, there was one who honestly told me it was for the money. And I'm like, you know, that, that's, that told me a great deal because I, I'd worked with this manager and, and they were having a lot of particular issues in understanding how to relate to the people that they were, they, they were working with. And they had a very directive style. I mean, it was very much by the book, by the numbers, you know, just push, 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 push. And it was largely because you could see in the rest of the organization, the dominant management structure measured him on that. It rewarded him right. on achieving certain, certain metrics and milestones. So the behavior was passed down and he right. gathered a, a cadre that related to that. So why do, why do leaders and managers need to learn new theory? It's literally out of care and concern for the people that they're leading. Uh, if you right. fall, if you fall back on the, on, on being blind to these things, this is when you are going to engage in a lot of behaviors that are counterproductive. You're going to try to induce folks to, uh, achieve things that they can't because you haven't provided a, a, a method for them to be able to do it or how to assist them in understanding the, the job. You're just going to say, look, I I'd like, you know, I'd like you to reduce defects, the escape defects this, right. you know, for this past month, unacceptable. They've got to come down by 10% or 15%. Well, what does that even mean? I mean, it, it, and if, if you've been in the business any length of time, you know what's going to happen. I mean, like basically they're going to find a way to obviate and they're going to make you feel happy about seeing that figure 10% hit and then everybody goes home happy, but the, the quality is still is still not there. So it's it's not an easy thing. I'm not proposing something that's, that's easy or instant. It does right. not happen. But... If, if a leadership team is sincere enough, and I have worked with sincere leadership teams, they want to learn, then they dedicate the time to this. They make the space and time, and they dedicate themselves to regularly understanding these things. They don't have to be experts. They just have to be putting forward diligent effort to improve. And it starts with them. Like, they've got to clean house. They've got to get the cobwebs out, the bad practices out, and start building towards better ones. That are right. going to allow them to manage more, manage their their people more effectively. So you um, you mentioned that there's there's a few threads I want to pick on, but they all come to the same thing, which is kind of numbers, right? So yeah, um, you mentioned this not this this manager um, um, saying you know I did it for the money, which is like it should not be condemned, you know, like, you know, how much money you make means like certain things. Like it could be money for the healthcare of my mother, like for all you know, right? Yeah. Um, so that, that should not be condemned. But at the same time, what is on my mind a lot is that the the obvious setup of organizations is if you want more money, move to management, right? Like that there's the, that sort of um, one-way street of sorts. And, you know, some more recent organizations have you know specialist paths that can escalate sort of uh in compensation but the, the obvious path is sort of oh you know that's kind of like for the, the truly special people like maybe they can get to do that but like most people can, can only aim at management so what solutions are there, are there to that problem because to me like if that problem is there we, we were talking about incentives as well in our previous conversation yeah um, you're 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 always going to be sort of pushing against the the tide right 
Yeah, well, because again, this goes back to how have we been taught since we were kids. We were given gold stars. We were given very specific awards to, you know, that rewarded certain behaviors. Um, you know, our parents would, you know, uh, you know, might give us a, a cash award or might buy us, uh, you know, a bike if we get a certain grade in school. And there, there's, a, there's, there's a certain sense of irony in that because the grading is entirely, even when you, there, there is a large percentage of you that goes into the achievement of a grade. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dispute that, but there's a certain level of arbitrariness in it as well. And yeah. what we're doing is we create that expectation. So you go to university, you get your first job and you're in a performance appraisal before you even know it. And yeah. you're being appraised rather perversely for the for the for the design and performance of the system you had no hand in just how well you did within it and i use the metaphor of you've got to go get the cheese um so the manager is watching you go through the maze and seeing how well how adroit you are at getting the cheese and then he says well you didn't do so well so you know you you get artificial scarcity that gets uh, that begins to get put in there now when you decide to do that as a leader it seems natural i mean like i i deal with this all the time people even giving you know like uh amazon gift cards you know if they if they take on a certain task here's 100 bucks really great job um that introduces distortions into the system almost immediately uh, i had a manager for example who played into the inducements uh game uh, because they had found they, they they needed to have people cycle on to do maintenance and they said it's really unpleasant work um, you sometimes have to take calls, deal with people in the field, deal with technicians. Um, so I'm going to give out Amazon cards. And they gave them the lower denomination value. They thought $25 would keep bias out of the system. So I said, well, go ahead. See, I've, I've taught you as much as I can. If you think this is a good idea, tell me about how it works. And so long story short, a couple of people began to bias toward working uh, you know, in support all the time. And she found out there was a whole underground economy going on that she had created with these Amazon cards where <laughs> basically they would agree to do shifts for people and would get the cards in exchange. And they had banked well beyond their original allotment. She was thinking people might get one or two or three cards. These people were getting like 10, 12. Um, you know, you're never going to find that. You're never going to achieve uh, really what you wanted to do, which was improve the work so that it was more yeah. effective and enjoyable. Now, to your to your point about base salary remuneration, yeah, that that goes without saying. I mean, like that's you want to feel that you are valued for what you're doing. But at sure. a certain point, and and this is what I see with a, a number of organizations that adopt a more systems oriented approach, they look towards how do we um, understand contributions that go out into the system. And for a lot of folks, what they do is they get rid of commissions, they get rid of that distortion, and yep. they get rid of they get rid of excessive bonuses, and they move towards profit sharing. And they might gear mm -hmm. the profit sharing based on seniority. So if you've stayed with the company five years, eight years, ten years, there's you know your contributions are going to be considered to be um, more. You know you've dedicated more time. Um, that should be acknowledged. But the right. idea is we all make contributions to raise the boat, as opposed to all of the uh, extrinsic motivation inducements that we've come to rely yeah. on, that we all come to know and love. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I mean, the, uh, I'm glad to say we, um, 
the 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 the, the salary sorry the 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 commission uh thing was something we 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 stopped doing early though it's fascinating because well i was gonna say you know we we lose sort of good candidates but i i'm actually rephrasing it as i'm saying it because it's it's more like we have an early chance to uh, on both sides actually figure out that there's not a fit right so you, you you're saving yourself something there but it's it's um yeah it's it's that sort of you don't see the escape behaviors that you are enabling by saying you know one person is is motivated this way one person is motivated that way um and that they will find a way to sort of balance that out and not necessarily in the way that you want them to um, yeah. yeah exactly yeah i remember you were saying about sort of the manager who said you know well you know this is maintenance this is support this is kind of like um lowly work let's say so we're gonna um encourage it a little bit extra or something like that i and so at belena we have this thing called uh, support driven development which means basically all of our developers uh all of our engineers do support uh, it is just part of the job everybody does it it's just um yep. it's it's not something that um you know, it, 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 some people love it, some people don't love it, but it, it's not like considered like less than, right? Because everybody does it. Um, but we had a, a support lead that joined us uh, from GitHub at, at a time. Um, oh. And uh, they, and I saw a lot of sort of apologetic messages about like, oh, I know it's support, but could you please? And and, and I started getting wind of this and I, and I just sort of, you know, took them aside and, and I said, look, don't, they don't know. <laughs> Don't tell them the secret. Like we here, we actually maintained it as a pretty high-end um, activity because it's in truth. I am I'm this close, and really one day I should just I should just do it. I should rename support uh, into user user field research, which could because this yeah. is how we understand it. Um, uh, you know, we 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 really say there are there are two objectives in support. One is to solve the immediate problem. And then one is to solve the infinite problem of the fact that there's probably 10 more customers having the same problem right now, but they don't go to support because do you go to support? I don't go to support. The, the brave person who went to support is probably speaking, you know, for another 10. And then if, if, if we don't, if we don't help them, there's going to be 10 times that many in the future, right? Like we've got to put, put, draw a line. So helping the one person is great. But fixing the root problem is probably, you know, I, I, we just use a 101 sort of ratio uh, sort of just as a mental toolkit, um, it's it's a hundred times better. It's like it's, it's it's all the people right now that are having the same problem, plus all the people that will have the same problem. Um, Brilliant. Brilliant. But um, you know, this is something that um, and this is this is I mean this is fundamental to the loop, right? Like the, the loop has these 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 channels which are like our sensors yep. and one the, the biggest sensor we have is support. Um, so things come from there all the it's just constant. Um, and, and you never know about it, right? It's, it's the, the other thing you mentioned about how um, it's sort of the, the, the T-shapeness or, or, or you, you start an investigative problem in one direction and it ends up being in a completely different place. That's, that's also fascinating. You know, you get a, a strange question or something like, oh, you know, the customer's trying to do this and, you know, they want this feature or whatever. It's like, wait, 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 what are they trying to do? <laughs> you know, that's nice. sort of um, yeah, sorry. So, so, so I was, I was, uh, I was kind of. Uh, this is came to, came to me as you were talking about the the the, um, the lowly support and how you can frame things completely differently, right? It, the one is like, well, you know, it's 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 hard work, but someone's got to do it. Might as well throw someone out of the bus. And the other one is like, no, actually, that is probably the most important thing we can do. And it also builds empathy, by the way, right? Because oh, totally, totally. We, we're we're not 
when we were working on one little part of the system, um, you can be you know focused on that and not really think about anything else. And uh, the sad truth is that our users are more experts in our product than any of us is because we don't experience it, you know, the gestalt. Um, yep. And, and they do. So um, it's more than supporting us. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, customers are incredibly valuable for this. This is what I like when I saw how you're uh, continually moving things up to the surface. You know, there was that that one particular um, area yeah. that you had. And I said, wouldn't it be great if you put the customers there? Because yeah. that's exactly the, the, the touch point. So it, when you look at um, what it, what it brings to mind for me almost immediately is um, when you look at Deming's uh, model of production viewed as a system. So in the 1950s, he's showing this revolutionary way of looking at how the organization works to the Japanese. And it's the germ that led to, you know, and, and no one could have foreseen how fast they would overtake the market to the point where they were building higher and higher quality products by following this. But if you look at it, he's got very interesting notes because he's he's basically laid the, the, the top down structure. He's turned it 90 degrees and he says it's a flow. So you've got suppliers providing inputs, processes are changing it, and then it goes out to customers, but then customers loop back into research. And then that goes into product development and design, which then gets fed in as an input again throughout the entire system. So he was beginning to observe this because it was natural in Japanese businesses for people to go through the, the apprenticeship levels. So you wouldn't just start as a manager, you often started learning the business. You had to understand what does the customer go through in using our products. And that's right. what builds uh, a lot of pride and joy in the work that you are doing because you understand I'm contributing to this right. product. Here is how my customers are using this product. This is really, really important. They're, they're solving huge problems with this. And the more that I can learn, that I can glean, I, I like what you're doing, that if you're taking this input and it's, you, you don't call it support, you, you call it customer research. I mean, like, that's perfect. You know, that's exactly what, um, what, what should be intended, that this is the lifeblood. This is right. how we're going to learn how to improve. Um, you know, I, I compare and contrast that. I had a, I, I, I ranted about this on LinkedIn, about how an organization Please just lay it on us. <laughs> We're ready for it. <laughs> how it doesn't work. And it doesn't have to do with technology, but it does have to do with not understanding your customers and not connecting the parts of your organization. So, I have uh, an older Acura MDX, and uh, love that car. I got it. I bought it uh, from the original owner because I wanted to see what it would be like to be an Acura owner. So I take it to my local Acura dealer for servicing. And I, I begin to notice almost immediately that there's hiccups in how the servicing gets done. It seems like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. I get the vehicle back at times and there's damage done to the vehicle. And I've actually given up. Like I, 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 I've had tires changed and they've like scraped the, the rims all up. Um, I had, uh, you know, a, a recall that had to be done. There was seals that had to be uh, put in around the rear taillights. I go and I find that they've gone and cracked some of the, um, the fairing in the back by the gate. So all of these little things begin to accumulate. And then one day, you know, like I, I don't drive it that often. It's very low mileage. The sales executive uh, sends me a text and he says, would you like to trade in and buy a new one? 
And I'm like, so I, I, I got in touch with him and I said, why in God's green earth would I pay eighty, ninety thousand $90,000 for a new Acura when you treat mine like complete garbage? I don't think that there's a connection that you understand that I'm going to see you for two seconds. I'm going to see these guys way, way more. Like, you know, every six months, I'm going to be in for an oil change, uh, you know, transmission fluid, tires, et cetera, et cetera. And you guys have got to start working together because what they're doing on their end is hurting you on this end. And yeah. I introduced them to a, you know, there, there's a concept that, that comes from this that, that gets paid forward. And it's, um, it was communicated <laughs> to Deming um, called unknown and unknowable consequences. They are, mm -hmm. These are things that are incredibly important for management to measure or, or, to, or for management to actually manage, but cannot be measured. So in this very in this particular instance, and it and it applies to your business as well, what is the multiplying effect of a happy customer? One whom you guys, without even knowing, knocked it out of the park. You help them in an immeasurable way. And what is the same multiplying uh, negative effect for when you dissatisfy or you drop the ball for a customer in a really significant way? These are things that we can't account for, but are so important. So for what I was able to reveal to the sales exec at the dealership was you've got a big hole in your system where you're not connecting the feedback of the customer experience and how that shapes whether that person's going to be a future customer. And then, of course, when I share it on LinkedIn, <laughs> now it's gone, you know, it gets amplified. Everyone's like, wow, that's a really, yeah, we had no idea. They're a Japanese company. Should they be, you know, really aware of Right. You know, commitment to quality, that seems like it's a little bit of cognitive dissonance. And it's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, why, why would you um, buy a luxury SUV and get service that, you know, I may as well have bought a Honda, you know, CRV. Uh, you know, like I would accept the, these kinds of mistakes at a lower quality. When I, when, I, when I hear you say the story, my, my mind always uh, can't help but feel bad. I mean, feel bad for the sales executive. At the same time, he didn't know what he was, uh, what he was buying with that sales call, right? So that was, that's great on, on one end. Um, but um, the, the, the thing that we, 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 we've, um, so, so this is, this is, a, this is a, a story I tell often, but uh, at some point, I wanted to avoid that exact problem, right? I wanted to avoid a customer having a bad experience. Uh, maybe they send us a survey that says, you know, like I'm really unhappy, whatever. This is terrible. While we're, we're, we're trying to, on the other hand, like sell them something or, you know, uh, up, upgrade their package or whatever. And so I, I asked the basic question: Can we have a unified timeline for our customers? I know we have analytics. I know we have uh, forums. I know we have forums. I know that there's social media. I know we talk to them on support. I know we talk to them on, on, on customer success. Um, and there's, who knows, you know, this, this, you know, you know, dot, 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 there's like the, yep. the, the, the other, um, how can we pull all that together? And the answer I got is we do not, and we cannot, and there's actually no real answer, you know, because every, and, and this gets me to the, to the other problem that I, is basically the bane of my, my existence, which is that our tools own us, right? Like the reason we can't have that is not because, you know, we don't know how to, Put, put a lot of events in one pipeline and 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 parse by customer ID. It's that every company that makes that product wants you to stay in their product. They don't want you to take you know uh, your analytics events and your um, uh, you know your 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 support threads and your um, everything else, right? And 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 
and match it to get the the top top down view. Um, and 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 that sounds conspiratorial, but uh, I mean, if you've seen if you see some of the APIs I've seen, you'd <laughs> you'd be at least this upset. Um, so. Yeah, at some point, you know, incompetence starts to fade as a as a as an explanation of malice starts to emerge. Um, but um, it 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 it's it's what what we've experienced with Alliance is is sort of at the outside in effect of like okay, we don't follow that structure, but the outside world wants to impose it on us because what do they want? Oh. Do they want to sell you seats, right? So to have seats, I need to find the the priest the, the priesthood of. Salesforce or of, of, of Zendesk or whatever, and that already then backward changes the same org chart. Yeah. And so that begins to get to this inverse Conway proposition again. We come back to that, where you know you're you're finding that the communication patterns and structures that your customers have with respect to how they want to have that licensing or or mm -hmm. management done is now causing you to shift. But what you could do is realize that for some customers, that's the world that they're in. You, you meet them where they're at um, mm -hmm. and then begin to evolve that relationship, you know, show prop, right. you know, proposition. How can we improve this more? So this is the very Toyota way of thinking mm -hmm. is they, they're very concerned about um, how do their vendors and suppliers work? How can they begin to share some of their knowledge about their operating system of how they're organization works to facilitate bringing material through and realizing at the other end how do customers buy our products you know and so right. for toyota it's 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 rather important they connect the entire value chain based on customer pull so they set up production schedules based on sales that are done at certain cadences so that they know how many cars and how many parts and how many colors everything right. needs to be done they've designed a system to sell very efficiently sell cars the challenge for you is to design and teach your customers a new way of purchasing your products. Right. right right, now, they're stuck on wanting you to look at it in a certain per seat way. But what is the next innovation? Um, yeah. You know, and th this, this again is why I think Deming sometimes is ahead of his time because he has a, you know, he writes this brilliant uh, part. And I, I just wrote a blog post about this. The customer generates nothing. And his, his, position on this was innovation doesn't occur by continually satisfying incremental improvements that a customer may ask for an existing product. It comes from actually predicting what the customer is not going to be, uh, not going to live without in the future. Yeah. And that is what is more interesting. You, you deal with maintaining yeah. your customer relationships now, but the secret sauce is leapfrogging ahead. What is the next view? What is the next way that people are going to want to use your products and services? And you might get some of them, you might lose some of them, you might yeah. open up a whole oh, new sure. market. And, and, and that's another reason why you don't want to um, be overly committed to your organizational structure. Yeah. Um, famously, Steve Jobs sort of uh, happily cannibalized the iPod, right, with the iPhone. And yeah. knowingly so. Because yeah. he determined that it was dead, that it was going to be gone, right? And, and, and he probably, knowing Jobs, he probably did that when it was at its peak, right? Yeah. He got one, yeah. This is way too good. We've got to kill it. Like, <laughs> something like that. Um, but, um, you know, that means that you are committing to essentially eliminate an, an entire sort of, I mean, what is the iPod today at Apple, right? Like, do they even make them? <laughs> I think like maybe like they make a like a, 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 a weird iPhone or something uh, yeah. without a phone. But um, it's it's this willingness to cannibalize, which I mean, a founder has the 
sort of moral authority to do, but like often la lacking in, in, in sort of follow-on uh, leaders. Um, but it's 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 that sort of uh, this is the part I'm 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 also actually not uh, I don't have fully developed thoughts on, on on sort of how do you well we kind of know right you do not ship your org chart right you don't you don't want to just have an or your own structure which you develop in whatever way you developed it and then imprint that in your product uh, accidentally. Right, so mm -hmm. Sinovsky's uh, blog post about that actually, when he said, you know, don't ship your orchard, he wrote a blog post, which I, which uh, strangely I read. I usually just take the aphorism, but that time this was so big, I was like, I gotta find more. And he says in that blog post that, um, but but the secret is you can't, right? Not yeah. ship your orchard. So make your orchard fit your product. Great, but how do we? Th 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 this is a, this is another problem I, I keep coming up against, and I I've got maybe hints, but I, I don't have a fully finalized solution, which is if you're, you know, you've got basically two two forces flowing, you know, you've got your customer telling you, I want this product be this way, or you see what works or whatever, right? That could be going different different paths. But then that implies an org structure, right? And that implies a set of people. And on the other hand, you have a set of people and they are in a structure and they are making a product and they're trying to sell it to a customer, sometimes force it onto a customer, right? So you've got these two flows of, of, of causality. And you 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 want I mean some if, if there's like a visionary fine right you want to go that way but most of the time you want to you want to sort of be moldable right you want to be water uh, compared to 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 your to your customer to be what they need ideally what they will need but definitely not what they needed to 20 years ago <laughs> um, so how does how does an organization forego that sort of path dependence that like we've built we've built the structure we've got people there's egos there's like history there's all of that stuff which has nothing to do with making a better product. Um, how does an organization sort of make its org chart uh, fluid in that way of like, we, we have to be the best organization we can be today for the product we're making today for our customers? Well, look at what you would be satisfying alternatively. So we already know that if we decide to put departments and divisions in place and limit communication flows and rely on hierarchy, we're we're necessarily ossifying, we're limiting our degrees of freedom, as it were, to be able to respond. So in the traditional matrix or hierarchy, uh, hierarchical organization, the people who actually have the fewest degrees of freedom are the people who need the most. And so that is when you start ascending up the chain. So you'll find that product managers, then you know VPs, associate VPs, all the way up into the C-suite, you just watch these degrees of freedom begin to evaporate, especially if they're reporting to a board. Um, right. So that begins to it begins to influence things in very uh, very interesting and sometimes not so good ways. Right. So if you're wanting to to evolve and adapt um, different structures, it's it has to be particular to what you do. I can give you examples. You know, I could say, go look at what Bill Gore did with Gore and Associates. Why was everyone who joined Gore and Associate and created the lattice structure? It's because he wanted an organization that was free to innovate and develop right at the point of the spear. Um, and it was often, there was a story that was often told that when you joined, you would meet uh, Gore. Sadly, he's passed away, but you go and you'd meet him in his office. He'd say, you know, great, see that you're a graduate of, you know, Harvard MBA, we expect great things of you. So, you know, go. And that's your orientation. Your orientation is sink or swim. You know, so you go and you learn about what the different product groups in the organization do. 
And you've got to go say, well, I've got a great idea for a new sleeping bag, or I've got a great idea for a new boot. And I'm going to pull the people together. They're all, you know, we're going to see what we can do. And the funny, funny thing about Gore is that, um, and I don't know if they still do it to this day, but he used to answer the phones. So if you, there was the responsibility of anybody in the organization to answer the phones and pick them up. Right. Um, similarly, you could look at a company, you know, it's not so much now, but it was a darling for the Agile set, uh, you know, maybe about six years ago, seven years ago, it was Valve. So yeah. they, they had their handbook, you may remember, it got leaked onto the net. And it presented this very interesting um, idealized view of how, what it's like to work at Valve, but it was an intriguing structure. Uh, right. Because they said, basically, you became the advocate for a, an idea or a product, and you tried to build your own team. Now, you might, win in the, you might win in the marketplace of ideas, you might lose, you might end up joining another team. It seemed a little bit, you know, a little bit of like controlled anarchy, but it allowed them to develop products because they were able to net, you know, create instantaneous networks. And they got right. out of the way for the teams to be able to figure out how to solve that. So I think they, I think what we, you know, another influence that just comes to mind as well. And it's a very, very old one. It comes from the 1980s. That was the influence for um, the original agile practices and frameworks like Scrum. So there were two guys who wrote a paper in 1986, Harvard Business Review, Takayuchi and Nanaka. And it was called the New New Product Development Game. And inside of that, um, they analyzed why at that particular point in history, Japanese teams seemed to be so adroit at getting new products, new innovations into the market. And one of the things they attributed to, and I found really interesting, is they said that uh, management needs to create a space that's got some tension. It's not completely open. It's not um, lim un unlimited and unbounded. It's you need to solve this particular problem using these particular resources within this particular time frame. Um, we're going to give you some ideas and guidance on that. But you're responsible for figuring out how to do this. And so it led to, to ideas that we used in early Agile where it was, uh, you know, white room design. It was kind of like the nascent beginnings of that, that you, and it was ironic, you would decouple a team from the part of the organization that was constricting it. You removed all of those, you set them in their own space with controls and boundaries and said, solve, you know, how can we solve the problem? So the, the challenge for leadership is, looking at how to marry using your knowledge. And that's the very important. You can't divine these things by relying upon the ideas of the past. And this is why I, I can continually come back to guys like Goldratt and, and Deming and Akoff, who I think were, um, you know, until the 1990s, that, that was kind of their zenith, you know, the early 1990s. And then it began to drop off for whatever reason. We've got to rediscover what some of these guys were talking about because that's where it comes from. Leadership and um, and their leadership teams being able to understand how do we contri uh, contribute towards creating a holding environment in the organization, in the operating system that allows us to adroitly address these needs, to reform as we might need. We can't predict, right? We can't divine how should I move into this new um new paradigm? How should I move into this new structure? What do I need to put in place? That's largely up to you to figure out. You've got to be able to have the theory to say, I understand all the things I should be looking at and thinking about. Now, what are the experiments that I can begin to take to design this? 
how do I begin to get a feedback loop that go right. that allows me to interpret what I am getting as I move into this? It, right. it, the, the big, 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 big caution is, and you and I, I think we talked about this before about the Spotify model and its influence in in Agile, and realizing that nobody does the Spotify model at Spotify. <laughs> I mean, like it was it was an experiment they did. It suited that particular period in time. And yet, what do we have right now? We've got a lot of companies wanting to to adapt to or, or copy without understanding anything about Spotify, the product it makes, the people that work there, trying to bring all of that into your organization. It's as, it's, it's as naive as when, you know, uh, the big three tried copying lean in the 1980s. It, it's bound to fail, bound to fail. No, no theory, no knowledge. Um, it, it's, um, I mean, the... The, the 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 sort of the, the binary I see is reasoning by analogy and reasoning by reasoning by first principles, right? So you um, when you try to ask the question of like how should I structure my organization, you have you know these these two paths to go like analogy, like who am I gonna like like who am I gonna structure myself, right? What is out there? Well, there's Bob, there's Spotify, there's like uh, generic agile, there's like holacracy, but oh god forbid, um, <laughs> whatever, right? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm waiting now for <laughs> the words of the, <laughs> to um, But they will, they will be very nice, and they will submit their 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 aggressive feedback very very well formatted. Um, the uh, but but or on the other side, you could see like, okay, what is it that we do, right? What is it that we need? How how is it? Yeah, how should information travel, et cetera, et cetera? I can take inspiration, of course, whenever anywhere else, but. Yep. Um, and, and often, I mean, having having you know uh, worked on 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 Valena for for a long time, um, one one thing I, I I used to think that startups would bring us the new organizational paradigms, right? And to some degree, that's kind of sort of true. You know, like Valve is a startup, Spotify is a startup. Yep. Yep. Um, ideas are coming through, but um, they are far. You know, the, the the rate of innovation is far far slower than I would naively expect, and I, I can now tell you why because. Um, oddly enough, as a, as, a, as a sort of as a founding team or whatever, you are very encouraged to innovate on your product, but very discouraged from innovating on your structure, right? Because uh, it's seen as a distraction, basically. The, 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 the explicit connection between what you do and how you're structured is not well understood by anyone who might, um, you know, it's, 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 I mean, we know that it's like many, many things that right? we know it, but it's not at the forefront. So when we see people like tweaking, like uh, you know, incentives or structures or trying different things, um, they are the things like why aren't you working on the next feature, right? Um, so uh, that's that's something that 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 that, that I, I guess I, I resolve my own curiosity by <laughs> by finding that out uh, the, the the hard way. But it's 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 I guess it expresses that 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 same thing. I think we've been we've been dancing around this concept over and over again, where you try to fix one part of the system, but then you know whether it's the software or whether it's uh, you know your, your your mentors or whether it is your even your, your customers, right? Sometimes or your suppliers or yeah, yeah. all sorts of things will try to um, draw you back into balance, and that might mean that they might absorb one percent of what you want, but they'll need you to accept ninety nine percent of what they want, right? So 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 uh, it, it kind of a system. You you create a hole in the water, and the, the system wants to fill it back. Um, yeah. So I guess. Maybe this is a, 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 a good place to, to to go, and like this is you know ultimately the real the real issue. Right? How do you create 
I guess how do you how does one handle this this problem? I mean, this this is what you've uh, you've faced as well in your uh, if I understood correctly from your introductory uh, comments. You said, well, you know, you can't just fix the software team; you have to fix the management team, right? Um, yeah. But you know, does that mean like we have to fix our civilization? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, no. yeah. Yeah. How, how do yeah. We, Established progress that is that is long lasting, I guess, in a world that is that is you know fundamentally you know the bro brokenness is everywhere, right? How do you how do you create something that not only works but continues to work? Well, it, I think it's as simple as just starting with what you can, what you have the domain to control. Um, the change can seem overwhelming. If you if granted, if you blew the scope of the problem up, it would just be discouraging, and that's why um, transformation is individual. So Deming says this very clearly in the book. He says, you know, transformation is individual and it's discontinuous. Um, but through, through that, that's where he's going to pick up all of his new understanding um, and his relationship to other people and how he interprets figures and sees things. So it begins very, very simply with you observing, learning new things. And then what we, the, the metaphor we use is the lens. So there's a set of lenses that we use to see the organization today. And then we bring these new lenses in and we interpret new feedback, new information, saying, ah, here's why some of these things might be working this way. Perhaps I can nudge this and I can change this. Um, so just a, a very simple example, I'm, I'm auditing um, a class right now uh, that's done. It's a virtual academy, the Institute for uh, Quality Improvement, and it's facilitated by Eric Budd, and it's out of Michigan. I'll be teaching uh, a portion of that class in December. But he has a very interesting methodology. When you participate in this, and, and the target audience is leaders, managers, um, it's in situ, hands-on, you're going to change things, learning. Mm -hmm. so, so one of the first things that he posits is, we're going to learn how to do something called moves. And what I want you to do is come up with ideas on something you are going to change. You are going to move something. Um, and he gives you a caution. He says, First time out, you're probably going to make a move that's way too big for you, and you're going to have to dial it back to a point where you actually can. And what he's teaching you is how far you can actually move the levers in the system that you have the access to do. And mm -hmm. then he's going, to, he's going to say, well, now you've got to design an experiment. You've got to tell me, plan out. How do you know that this move is going to produce this outcome? What's the outcome that you're looking for? What are you expecting to affect that change with? And those are the things that you're going to slowly, incrementally begin to evolve out. So over, like this class goes until December 17th, every single day, they, go, they meet for 45 minutes in the morning and they talk about what did you learn yesterday? Um, what did you, how did that move experiment go? How are things going? And oh, by the way, oh yeah, you also have to have a conversation where you're teaching what you're learning to somebody else in the organization. Because it's only through mm -hmm. teaching that we, we close the feedback loop. Right. So he's teaching you how to build your own operating system for change. And it doesn't matter what business you're in and you're gonna to begin to incrementally move that forward. You're gonna move these ex experiments and changes forward. And it's a lifelong learning process. Uh, you're not gonna know, but it, it has to start at a very, very small space for, so that you can begin to figure out what is my scope of change? What can I really affect? So you don't blow your brains out and discourage yourself and you know implode. Right. And speaking of, of, of this sort of, um, you know, how far you can go or you can not go, I guess um, what you mentioned before about sort of how, you know, the, the, the thinking that came out of uh, Akoff and, and, and Deming and stuff, 
mm-hmm. I guess with Lean was like at the at the at the at the peak, right? Uh, where everybody was like looking into Lean, and then you know yeah. how, where that came, where that come from. But Lean was like a massive success, right? So 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 that clearly was change that happened and uh, got fixated. Like it, it it's now a thing that yeah, everybody sort of. Uh, understands and it's been replicated and it continues to 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 work. So maybe that's something interesting to to think about because it's been so it's not that it's it can't be done because it hasn't been done, right? <laughs> that's yeah. some, um, yeah. But I'm I'm wondering what um what perhaps uh happened around that time then that sort of because when I so when I rediscovered those ideas, they seemed both to be have very well credentialed, like anyone who's anyone you look at them and you say, okay, what do they think about Deming? And they're like, yeah, they think that he was the greatest. Like, or, you know, what do they think about Akov? It's like, you know, extreme, like positive arrows, right? But then yeah. the discontinuity was that those ideas are not being applied. So you're like, okay, what, uh, you know, it's like, there's like, a, it's almost like we entered a dark a dark age and I don't know what um, what that was, but um, I'm just wondering if ha- you having you having seen it. Um, I mean, this isn't, by the way, to me, this isn't uh, un- unfamiliar because my 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 um, my, my sort of uh, academic work and then what I do at Elena actually goes into five GLs, right? Fifth generation languages, effectively, like the, 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 the domain, which is another thing that's really cool. <laughs> like late '80s and early '90s, and then yep. it's kind of like. The dark. So I'm, I'm I'm extremely used to that, right? Like kind of yeah. digging out and saying like, "Wow, these ideas were great," and and trying them out, and they do work. But it's just that everybody's mind is elsewhere. I'm just wondering how, um, if you know any of that story, or 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 how the are 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 like are they coming? Is is there like a new generation now that's looking at those ideas? You mentioned the the the, the Deming Institute. Um, how you know? I guess the, the, what's the story of those ideas since? Since the lean era, uh, maybe, maybe I'll, let's make it a little bit open. That this sort of, how did they go into, you know, did they go into hibernation? Are they coming back? What's what's the what's the uh, the timeline? Well, so lean, I think, has not really gone away. It's evolved. So there, there are, you know, and you probably know from academic work, there is often the theory as was intended, and then there's the what ends up yeah. happening in reality. <laughs> so a, a lot of the story of Lean and Deming and Akoff, uh, Drucker, um, we, we see that uh, a lot of these ideas had great promise, but it was the Western mindset that began to not really fully appreciate or understand things. So one of the things that really bedeviled a lot of things working with respect to whether it was Deming's, uh, you know, whole system improvement, total quality management ideas, or or lean evolving into lean six sigma from Motorola. Um, these ideas began to kind of run their course. They they were designed for a particular to solve a particular problem, like lean six sigma was, um, but didn't take into consideration all the things that Deming was trying to make evident. And it Deming's problem began with sadly him dying. <laughs> I mean, when he passed away in 1993, it was not long after there were Deming associations around the world, uh, across the U.S., in the U.K., and within five years, they'd all folded, right? Like, the, right. he was such a paragon, such a, you know, a, a force of personality that once he was gone, everyone was kind of like, well, I don't know what to do with this. And no one was left to carry on the advocacy. So you ended up yeah. with this critical gap. And for him, what where where the dark point began to to settle in was, and what he was always pressing to advocate 
is we're teaching the wrong things in business school. And Acoff would say the same thing. We're teaching the wrong things to MBAs. We're churning out MBAs. And embarrassingly, from here, we're sending them overseas. And they began to learn very bad practices. Um, and they began to undo a lot of the things that Deming had taught to the Japanese, for example, for, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s. And there was a very, you know, a recent example you might remember where um, in Japan, they were having issues with the quality of steel. So there, were, mm -hmm. there was highly defective uh, quantities of steel going out. They were getting put into cars and airplanes, boats, and they traced it all the way back. When you looked at it, it was right back to uh, leaders who were, when they were younger, being sent to America to learn all of the worst practices that we've got to offer and bringing them all the way back. And then if they changed, you know, basically a generation of management, they undid everything and you, you were left with this, with this particular problem. So that's literally where things went dark. Now, fast forward, I go to um, the Deming conference, uh, annual general conference. It's in LA, it was 2018. And it was an opportunity. So my mentor, Bill Bellows, he's, um, this was his baby. He's putting it on. It's his hometown. Uh, and we've got all of the original stalwarts that are left in, in the Deming community. And it was phenomenal. Like I got to meet, you know, you know, I got to meet Joyce Orsini, you know, I got to meet, um, you know, Doug Hall. I got to meet, um, you know, uh, Deming's, uh, daughters, uh, you know, I got to I got to meet uh, Kevin Cahill, who's uh, Deming's grandson, um, who still carries on the work of the institute today. I mean, it was it was phenomenal. But one of the things that was was apparent is that for they're they're continually trying to to reinvent themselves to, to you know keep this message alive. But it it can't all rest on their shoulders. It is dependent yeah. upon guys like me to pick up some of these ideas, dust them off, and say how do we apply them you know, to, to the 21st century? How do we apply them in, in our current context and time so that we don't have this, you know, where it begins to slide and go dark again? It's dependent upon all of us to, to hold that tide back. It suffers entropy. Like any other idea, it suffers entropy. Uh, that's the best that I can, I, I, I can, I can explain. I think you've given me a, a, a big insight. I'm going to try to articulate it and, and probably just the top of it, but like, I'll, I'll do my best. Uh, which is that I've never really understood the part about you know um, it, it's the, you know there's the systemic and then there's the personal right the 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 the, the part about the person and and I think your story about Deming is is starting to form that picture for me because Deming is um, one person right and there are other one persons like there's you know there's a Steve Jobs like a lot of people who like are irreplaceable essentially like you you have a leader or you have somebody who comes up they have a they they fixed on an idea. And they really understand it so well um, that you know you can ask them any question about it, and they'll 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 it'll be natural to them to have the answer for you. But you can't replicate that source of truth right somewhere else, right? And what what strikes me is that obviously these people came through a process, right? There, there, there was a there was a path that they took. I'm assuming if I if I met a 12 year old. Uh, Deming, he would not be as eloquent about the, uh, you know, the the, the 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 problem of incentives and management or whatever, right? No. Um, so, so um, it, it strikes me that uh, 
potentially that is the thing to look into and 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 the the what you mentioned about apprenticeship gets touches on that right which is that you can't just um hope to sort of just teach the idea like verbally or just like you know there's there's the concept of embodiment like is the concept of i can read about how to how to ride a bicycle but i if i don't ride a bicycle i'm, I'm gonna fall right it, no matter how many tomes I've read, right? Uh, yep. the, there's going to be some knee scraping. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so, so that, it, it, there's something there about, you know, putting people through pathways that, um, you know, can, can stimulate the same or even better insights, right? Uh, 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 hopefully, if you're getting ever better Demings, it's not just clones, right? That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Like we, to, to kind of like go into what we've been discussing previously, we can't evolve Deming's ideas or begin to apply them just by copying what he what he did, right? So I, one of his uh, one of the one of the contemporaries he had, Ron Moen, um, who did a lot of on the statistical side theory um, with respect to Deming Deming's work. He became an early early uh, ally, and he had a fantastic. Uh, talk, but he started it off with a, uh, I think it was a, a Japanese proverb. And it basically goes something to the effect of don't seek to do what, um, to follow the master's footsteps, instead seek what the master sought. And right. it's a very, it was a very, very profound way of saying, yeah, this is up to you. He's shown you a path but you're not going to really achieve anything just by following that particular path. It's putting right. your own mind to work here. And that's where we in the West get really stuck. We're hung up um, on having concrete examples. We need to be taught through an example. If I teach you an example, you'll end up emulating the example and you won't necessarily know how you got from here to the example. And then worse, I will go away and you'll begin to have problems with the example and you're like, well, great. Now, what do I do? <laughs> you know. <laughs> so the, this brings to mind a, a, a somewhat of a, an anecdote um, that I, 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 that's always on my mind. It's like really, it's kind of depressing. I guess maybe it has like a, a optimistic ending. But um, the I think as the Roman Empire sort of dissolved, right? Um, the a lot of the, the schools of, of of learning also sort of um, you know kind of rolled backwards at the very least. Um, but they still have the 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 the, the, the trigonometry sort of uh, ratios uh, there, so they could design things. Uh, and but they also copied them, right? Uh, yep. So they they yep. made copies and copies and copies. However, in every copy, like if you anybody who studies like how the how the old test how the new testament sort of became what it is, like you you learn this thing about the scribes, right? And somebody makes an error, that error goes into that. That same thing happened with those uh, those, those trigonometrical uh, uh, constants. Um, and the, 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 the gradually they, they started losing the ability to build buildings because they, the, 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 the books themselves are unreliable, right? So you, you and the, the key problem was that they couldn't recover them. They couldn't, like originally somebody calculated them. They, they had the, 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 the methods and they, they, were, they, could, they could derive the number. But at some point, the number itself, the example in, 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 your, in your telling um, was the thing. And so long as you can take the example, right? But the, that's fine, but the but the example itself is something that you know in the telling or in the you know everybody will reframe it somewhat, um, gets you know loses its potency, 
Um, yeah. and, and then you no longer can, 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 uh, it, it's no longer instructive because it, it was solo. It was, but the thing is like you were doomed the moment you lost the formula, right? The, 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 the examples, it looks like things are working, but yeah. actually you can't, um, you, that's just a, just, uh, you know, it's predetermined what, what's going to happen, right? You, you've lost, you lost your source. So it could be 300 years before you find out that you're completely screwed. But, um, the moment you lost your source is the moment, <laughs> is the moment that your, your, your fate was sealed. Um, I don't know somehow that maps to the to the to what you were, you were you were mentioning. Well, well, immediately what comes to mind is variation, right? So I, I I mentioned the four domains that Deming taught. Actually, I probably didn't tell you this, but the four domains of knowledge that he wanted you to learn about to be more effective, whether you're managing yourself or or an enterprise. One of them is variation. Another one is appreciation for a system, psychology, and theory of knowledge, and they all intertwine. So variation is very interesting on this in this respect because what you're telling me with the scribes copying or the, the trigon trigonometric um, functions that they're laying out, that how they get lost in translation over time, that's a pattern of variation uh, that exists. So that they got put from individual to individual and what they had interpreted and learned. And so Deming used to communicate this with a fantastic simple little, little experiment. He had a funnel and he had a marble and he put an X on a tabletop and he would drop the marble through and say, okay, I want you to mark where it landed. And our objective is to get the marble as close to the X as possible. Now, when we talk about when things get lost in translation and transcribed, what's happening there is he had rules. He had one, two, three, four. This is the fourth rule that you're describing. So basically what happens is we developed the mentality of the marble landed, you know, maybe two inches uh, southeast of the X. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move the funnel directly over that where that landed. Because my expectation is I'm going to somehow correct for that. And I'm going to drop through and then it's going to move and it's going to move. And he said, and off to the Milky Way we go because I'm literally chasing. I'm using the last reference point of variation to try and, and right. compensate and get me back towards the X. That's what happens. Anybody who's built a deck where you use the last piece of wood to measure the next piece of wood, and you keep repeating that process, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> how does your deck turn out? <laughs> right, 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 right. Of right? Course, you, of you, you've, you've introduced inherent variation. Um, yeah. That's why it's so important to have some of these concepts because we're human and we're fallible. Even knowing these things, we're going to screw up. Um, but it is in recognizing that we have these uh, foibles that we try to guard against them. So when you have some knowledge of how a system can produce that kind of variation, all of a sudden you're gonna maybe do something a little bit differently, right? You're going to develop standards, um, operational definitions that reduce the variance. Now we could get into conversations, for example, of specification thinking is something in spec, out of spec, and the contributions in the 1960s that um, Dr. Uh, Taguchi provided to us with respect to the Taguchi loss function. Um, that changed, like that, that blew Deming's mind so much that he incorporated it into his thinking. He was like, I, I was there in 1961, I was there, I took in, the, and it just blew my mind. That's what he, he was effectively saying in his papers after that and into the new economics. Um, and just for the audience, just how that briefly changes things, it, mm -hmm. took, it took the concept of quality and moved it a quantum leap forward. Because before what we used to think was, it was a very binary condition where I'm defining with my fingers here, this is in spec. 
but there's variation that's occurring inside of that. So you'd have engineers designing things for tolerances. And so that would mm -hmm. begin to move. And if it fell out of spec, then that's how we would know that it wasn't an acceptable part. But one of the things that we found was what, what, how that drift occurred, there are you know, thousands of variables and inputs that would determine how that actually occurred. Right. And what we were doing when we were trying to design uh, higher quality products is we were only satisfying meeting the tolerances within specification. Dr. Taguchi comes along and he says, what if we were to draw an inverted parabola you know, kind of like this, you, um, and instead we place at the bottom of that parabola, now this is just an example, um, that's what we call the nominal value. That's what we want to improve toward. That's, that's bang on. Now, what I'm going to see is in my processes and systems and tools, how close to this am I getting? And he would say, if, uh -huh. we, un if we undershoot or if we overshoot, this is a much more systemic way. It's not in spec, out of spec binary. It's how well are we meeting the specification? Yeah. And there, what he would say is he would shade the, if we drew a, a point on the parabola and drew a line straight down from it and shaded that in, that's what he would call a loss, but not just a loss to us. He'd say it was actually a loss to society because right. we're not developing something to a high standard of quality. Now, how do we bring some of these ideas into what we do inside of technology? It's pretty obvious. Um, anybody who has developed a system knows that meeting requirements is not the end of the road. Um, and in fact, it's it's the road to ruin because how many times have we, you know, perhaps in our earlier careers, have we met the requirement and yet the customer is looking at us like we, we totally dropped the ball or we're catching hell from a manager because of it. The idea is, okay, well, let's strip that back. And what if we were to change our philosophy to how well are we meeting the requirements for the customer? And then you begin to see, well, that seems to sound a lot like Agile because we're continually running feedback loops to see if we're getting ourselves closer and closer to the nominal value that we want to meet for that particular customer. Yeah. You know, like it, the philosophy of, of, of how we look at quality as a systemic, uh, a systemic outcome, a lot of different inputs and how do we manage that, that changes thinking. And it's, um, I mean, the, 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 yeah, this idea definitely uh, kind of can send you, uh, can blow your mind a little bit. I, I mean, to me, the immediately, immediately obvious is from a psychology point of view, right? If you have a team and you tell them you're doing great, you're, you're, you're in spec, cool. You know, what do they do? They relax, right? They, yeah. They're like, oh, great. You know, we can focus on something else, right? And of course, what happens next, um, you know, it'll drift for a while, right? And then it'll, 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 it'll go out of spec and everybody's like, ah, hair and fire. Whatever, right? Yeah. Not, not, not something to really aspire to. Um, yeah. And, and um, whereas if you if you are analog about it, effectively, um, you first of all you realize the fragility of it, you realize the variation of it, right? Because it, it might like just naturally flicker, and you're like, okay, this is um, just what it does. You know, like it's not something that yeah. we. Um, I mean, we see it now actually with with um, with, uh, with, uh, with with a, with a, with the virus sort of. Where uh, people are, you know, it's gonna, there's gonna be a peak, right? And at the, right at the peak, a bunch of measures get announced, right? And then it goes down because, you know, deviation towards the mean. I mean, this, <laughs> this is what it'll do. And everybody's like, great, the measures worked. Uh, let's do more of them. It's like, but, you know, it's, 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 it's um, perfect example. We are very, very um, reactive, right? And, and looking for an N equals one uh, outcomes, right? Okay, we did this, and this happened, and therefore this, this did that, right? 
So whereas, you know, in our normal times, we were like sampling, you know, millions of things and variables and confounders and whatever, then when the crisis hits, we are like, ah, throw whatever you can at it, see what, see, see what happens. Well, well, um, it, well, it, well exactly. And, and you'll introduce more variation into the system without even knowing, right? So Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's the worst thing you can do, basically. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a lagging indicator. Right. So when you look at, for example, case counts, like at least here in Canada, I, I track the, the case counts and the accumulation of un, un, uh, uncompleted or incomplete tests in the backlog of tests. And, they, and it got crazy for a while. And what uh, I had to realize initially was I was trying to see when the government would make different interventions into the system. They would introduce mandates or they would introduce different control measures. And I'm like, this is complete naive control of a complex nonlinear adaptive system. Um, this is not going to work. It's not going to work as intended. In fact, what's going to happen is we're going to get something called a compensating feedback loop. And it feels like when you when the system pushes against you um, or when you push against the system, it pushes against you harder and you get stuck in right. this fight where it's can. Oh, it, yeah. I know, right? Yeah, I, 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 I know. Yeah, yeah. So please say more about it. This is a fa this is a fascinating, um, fascinating uh, concept. So yeah, please. Go ahead. So Senge gave the gave it this name in the fifth discipline, where he explains this concept a little, a little bit more fully. But basically, it's when if we don't understand a, a stimulus that is coming outside of the system. So if we're interpreting, for example, a number. And that, this is a, a fantastic example. So the premier of our province sees the number of case counts um, begin to accumulate. And so the first thing he does is introduce maybe an intervention saying, okay, well, we're going to introduce a mask mandate. That should, that should nail it. And then the system continues to do what it does because this is a, this is a virus, right? So it's got a different system it's working within. Then there's the human-based systems that, you know, that, that we're working in as a society. And we've got these complex confluences and we don't fully understand them. There's immune all systems, there's you know, all sorts of things, right? And so how are we interpreting the virus's behavior is we're sampling. So we're doing a sample within the community to be able to divinate a number. This is how many cases we've got. And the interventions that began to happen was you'd see the system begin to shift and change and then the, the case counts begin to increase. Well, so you say, well, what happened here? What happened inside of the system? And you say, well, they had a, uh, a crippling problem where they weren't able to get enough tests done per day. So they said, well, we're going to increase the number of tests we're gonna do per day. And so they did, they opened up some capacity and you know, farmed out to different labs. And <laughs> And it seemed to work for a little while, and then until it until it didn't, because then the premier said, "Well, you know what? If we're testing, we're not just going to test symptomatic people. Everyone should be able to get a test. Symptomatic, asymptomatic. You feel like you got the sniffles? No problem, guys. We've got the capacity." And so that had an immediate effect where it be, the system began to press back because now you've got more and more, you're outstripping the capacity of the system. So now the system is beginning to accumulate more and more load and it can't process. And so now it's pushing back on him and he doesn't know how to interpret this. The cases now are taking two weeks, three weeks to process. Um, people who are being identified as, as being uh, positive may have already you know, passed through the window, the threshold of being contagious. And right. so now you've introduced a new variable into the system. So you watch the system drop a little bit and then it crescendoed back up again. I was just uh, talking.
talking with someone about this the other day. In the month of September last year, it got so bad um, that at one point, I think, well, we climbed over the entire month of September when school opened. And what it what it began to happen was there was a, a fundamental attribution error that occurred because it seemed like the case counts were climbing when it was actually the backlog that was climbing and it reached 93,000 uh, samples that weren't able to be processed. And nobody had an accurate picture. It was two, three weeks out of date. So they were already beginning to think that their goose was cooked and they began to introduce another intervention. We're gonna have lockdowns soon. So the, the, the thinking about introducing a lockdown to control this wave that was already moving through, I mean, you're, you're, you're responding far too late, right? And these are naive measures. So you get locked in this dance where I can appreciate the, the, the premier, the minister of health, um, you know, the health officials, they're flying a little bit blind to this because all they've got are visible figures. And they don't realize the figures are coming from many different parts, many different systems, many different labs. Not everybody's using the same mm -hmm. way of gathering the sample and processing and doing the, doing the assays and how do they handle for false positives or false negatives. So you've got, in effect, systems upon systems upon systems that are filtering all of this and you're reacting to it. So this is where you yep. get into the dance. I'll introduce a measure, the system comes back and the cases go up. I'll introduce another measure. And so you push against the system and the system pushes back. Yep. And we've been, we've been through this. I mean, like we've had three lockdowns. I mean, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, 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 I mean, and I mean, it's actually a very interesting one as well from a startup perspective, um, you know, AB testing, right. And you mentioned before the, the, the unknown and the unknowables, um, yes. if you do an AB testing, you, you count positives, right? You, you count good, um, conversions. You have a metric, let's say conversions. Okay, fine. Who clicks the button? Um, are you getting a better kind of customer? Maybe the people who are going to look at your website twice are more serious. You count it as a negative, right? Yeah. Um, oh, and, and, but to me, the thing with A-B testing that I just cannot get out of my mind is like, you know, the, the negatives, it, it, you can, you can maybe increase positive, you can force polarization, right? Like you can, you can maybe, uh, find um the, the 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 thing that will get the most people to like immediately do what you want by also making finding by, by finding a scissor statement basically right by finding a, a a a form that will be you know some proportion will be enthusiastically pro while some proportion is enthusiastically anti right mm -hmm. so now mm -hmm. you're creating you know you just have, you just like um, lower the resolution like aggressively basically it's like you, you put them in a position where it's either yes or no um where so but you as you are converting you know uh and your your charts look amazing right you are also creating a shadow population of hater that um you can never really you know quantify you don't know what's happening you don't know what they're saying maybe your your your, your revenue drops two years later right yeah. and you don't know what what did that you can you can really never find out right like that is something that is so out of your you know radar uh sort of radius that yep. it's just it's just you know you can all maybe you'll get an anecdote and you'll be like eh whatever but in reality like you can you can replicate that setup right you like you can you can make situations like that and 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 so we can we can know it can happen and yet if you're in that situation you can never um 
confidently say that that's what did happen, right? So, so, and, and, you know, then there's a fundamental attribution error. So you're probably like not going to accept that. Uh, <laughs> and we're yeah. back to like well, tweaking, let's insert commissions, I guess. <laughs> that's sort of yeah. how it well, 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 not only that, you can have, remember, each person is going to bring their own judgment and biases to the AB test results. Um, so something is going to inform, you know, how they interpret, you know, maybe this isn't so bad when we put it into context, or maybe there was a mistake made in how we designed the test that promulgated these results, but each individual is going to be filtering that data differently. Um, so Deming had a, you know, a very good expression about this, that, um, he would say, get the facts, like what really, what is what is a fact that we are going to be getting from somewhere? Any two people, and that's just with two people, can have completely different ideas about an empirical fact because it's based on their interpretation and judgment. And this is where, this, this is the small little things that we begin to get uh, if we're not aware of. So if we try to evaluate ideas, we think empiricism works, for example, as a fail-safe against... Um, against error or against misjudgment. It's not always the case because uh, we are interpreting it through a particular filter. So, uh, and, you know, father of general semantics, Alfred Korzybski, your, your audience may be very familiar with me, said the map is not the territory. Right. Um, when I am interpreting something, it is coming through several different layers before it gets filtered into my brain and I make a, ju a value judgment based on that. And then I'm gonna be taking uh, characteristic inputs that are gonna be coming from my theory about what that test was actually telling me. What is the contextual contextual data? Am I comparing just two data points, or am I, you know, comparing a you know one that has more breadth? Understanding and knowledge has got temporal spread, so I've got to be able to actually measure this and put it into a contextual uh, framework so that I could interpret this. And then I'm going to share that theory. How are we going to design this test, and how are we going to interpret the results of this test? that becomes your operational definitions for the work that we do. You know, how do we introduce new innovations and ideas and decide what to do on the basis of them? One um, concept you seem to be touching on, uh, I, I, I wanna be mindful of your time, I probably should wrap up, but I have so many questions and I'm learning so much. That <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just gonna, I'm just going in all sorts of, I'm like, like you know, like the, 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 the guy at the, at the, the buffet, uh, it was always one. <laughs> Um, so you, you mentioned the, the 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 concept of like the the Western mindset, right? Which like I, I have to be honest, like me three years ago would roll my eyes at that. I would like like ugh, whatever. Like what's next? You know, yeah, are we gonna do yoga? But I, I I've come to <laughs> find um, that I've come to hit upon that. Like as you as you start to 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 work on thinking about systems, right? You, you see, it's it's just constant, like the, the numerization of all the things and the you know uh, finding. Um, I've learned a new thing now, a new term yesterday that is uh, just beautiful. Uh, they, they use it in, um, in various uh, medical uh, studies. Uh, they call it, a, like it's, a, it's a surrogate endpoint. As in, I cannot oh. get the, the result I care about, right? Like I can't, maybe that it's too long before I find out if like the, the patient was cured. Um, but um, I, I, there's some other thing that happens before that, right? Like the antibodies, like right? the counting now the antibodies right? for 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 uh, to see if vaccination works. So, so they're like, well, we don't know if they're immune, but they've got more antibodies. Mm -hmm. So so that's a, yeah. that's considered a surrogate endpoint. You get something earlier in the process, right? Um, yeah. But we know that for uh, for the, the history of medicine, that like 
things that have been approved with surrogate endpoints tend to have a terrible track record. Um, we, so, so that's another data. Like we, we, we know that whenever we do that, maybe we have a good idea for, we have a mechanicist, mechanistic model, right? Like we're like, well, if you got this, then this is gonna happen. We got a story, right, mm -hmm. that we sell ourselves. But we don't actually have that last data point. We just have the, 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 the intermediate one. Um, yeah. But somehow we convince ourselves to focus on that one um approve the treatment or whatever it is and then you know uh lo and behold something about our story was wrong or the, the system pushed back at us right um yep. and 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 it didn't actually play like like we like we thought it would or like we got the causality wrong <laughs> or something. uh but it's it, it, this is something that I, I i feel like a person who has grown in in, in this in this culture and I'm becoming aware that there's something else, like that there's, you know, maybe not everything is words, right? maybe not everything is numbers. Uh, maybe mm -hmm. things are, you know, con like, maybe it's okay to be told to just jump into the ocean and like swim, uh, rather than being given like an extensive document with like all of the bullet points, right? That you're not gonna be able to absorb anyway, but hey, somebody got their ass covered, so that's fine. Um, so so yeah. that that's, yeah, that, that is something that I, I, I'm just coming up against it, and I'm and I'm, and I'm seeing as as you're describing this, it's it, it's almost like um, it's not like Deming taught the Japanese what he knew, but he he was almost like a displaced person finding his his, his true his true culture uh, where his ideas made sense because of every other idea that was there already, or or, or something like that. Yeah, the, it's an interesting proposition, and it's discussed a lot in the Deming community about why were the Japanese so accommodating of his ideas? And I saw an interview. So there was a guy who got to Japan before he did. So Deming went over um, to conduct a, a census post-war. And that's how he, you know, he's a statistician by trade. So he went to um, conduct these studies. And it was while there that he began to realize he could apply some of his skills, which he had done for the United States in the war, but they dropped right. it all. And so he said, well, maybe I can teach you a little bit about how to improve quality with these techniques. But there was a guy who was there before uh, he got there. His name was Homer Sarasone. And you can still find this interview. He, he has an interview with a fellow by the name of Myron Tribus, who's another really fascinating guy who was a, uh, he's got quite a storied career, but he was like a, a professor at MIT Sloan School of Business. And he famously tried to interview Deming and Deming schooled him rather horribly. And he, <laughs> he, he, uh, he left the interview very upset and, you know, was, he said, well, I'll show him, I'm going to go into the library and I'm going to find out about all of these things. And then he finds out, no, Deming was right and becomes one of his big advocates. So I mention this because it's in the 1980s. It looks like it's the mid 1980s and Myron Tribus is interviewing Homer Sarasone, who was there in Japan before Deming got there. And it's a really fascinating, you can find it on YouTube. It's a fascinating interview um, because he basically explains how he found at that time, just after the war, Japanese uh, culture uh, was such that you could tell them to do anything. And this kind of shocked me because it was my expectation that a lot of this um, uh, you know, a lot of what I understand was a big influence on Deming. It was kind of like a symbiotic relationship. What Sarasone was communicating in this interview, it was like, you know, yeah, you know, like we had to get things done. We had to improve the quality of the, you know, immediately improve the quality of things on the ground. And so I just directed them. I told them what to do and they did it. 
And I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> my mind was actually blown about this. It wasn't, you know, how do we figure out how to work cooperatively? How do we right. learn about this? That was not, no, none of that was being done at that time. It was very directive work. Um, so Deming comes into this milieu afterwards. And this is why he's able to find so much traction, I think, initially with the engineers. And that was one of his original early mistakes was he talked to the engineers and not the managers. That was a pivotal thing, though. Like that taught him mm -hmm. a great deal that he was not reaching the right levels uh, to communicate his message. And what he ended up with was a problem with engineers being high advocates for the ideas, but never being able to implement them. Uh, so that began to, to change and evolve right. things. But it, it makes me think very much of, of Japanese culture in that respect. Like we always think that um, it's much more complicated. It's not so cut and dried. It's a, it's a complicated society. It's got hierarchical elements to it. Um, it's not so, um, it's not as what, as what we think with Western eyes, when we look at Japanese cultures, not necessarily as we, as we might interpret it through, you know, movies or books, TV, et cetera. It's a little bit more, uh, a little bit more nuanced. Now I've got uh, colleagues or friends who um, who travel to Japan. They will actually take, in the before times at least, they used to take groups of people to learn about lean. And then as part of that, we're gonna go over and spend one or two weeks in Japan and we're gonna tour a number of different uh, facilities. Toyota will be one of them, um, but we're gonna go around and we're gonna learn about the culture. We're gonna learn about everything that makes um, lean right. in their understanding possible because it fits in that domain. So when I talk about like the Western uh, to Westernize to Western culture, why we think a certain way, it's just like in Japan, there are certain things, certain subtleties that we don't understand necessarily that sound very cool when we learn about them. You know, we're like, ah, oh, they, they've really got it nailed down. They've got these fancy words to describe these subtle cultural practices that, you know, involve, you know, come out in these amazing, amazing ways. And, and what have we got? <laughs> you know, right. uh, but, we, but we have subtleties as well. There is uncommunicated tacit knowledge and patterns that we've got. Just some of them, we, we tend to focus too much on what is in our face versus looking at the subtleties of how the or you know how people work and how organizations work, you know that, that they figured out over time. One of my um, the, yeah, uh, one of my favorite. Um, I've lived in different places in my life, right? I I, I was I was born and raised in, in, in Greece at twenty four. I went to the UK. I stayed there for ten years, and then I I, I moved to the US. But I was I was, I was uh, coming to the US for the first time to raise uh, venture capital, right? That was like the reason I I. I uh, Sort of came and ended up uh, staying was 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 uh, sort of venture capital, um, and I did my early pitches uh, for for some people that I really respected, right? And I had my t dialed in in the UK. Very quiet, very like listening, you know, speaking directly. It's it's actually surprising, like uh, like a much more like like a, a Japanese actually where where you, you, hierarchy matters. Subtlety matters, innuendo, uh, there's a lot of that, right? Yeah. And so I went to the US and like nobody could really understand uh, what I was, uh, I was they, they were questions. I wasn't understanding them. Uh, but the, 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 the punchline is at some point I realized I got to get back to my Greek style for them to understand me so they can about it. Because like, <laughs> I got to be like direct. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> it's like, how do, how do those, you know, those two worlds connect? But, but, but somehow that was, 
an insight that like it just came to me and then it clicked and then I was able to much more communicate than using my UK sort of mannerisms that I that I had learned. But it, I, I just I'll never forget how you know having you know these three contexts and how they they mixed and matched so, so weirdly. <laughs> yeah, it was just yeah. That's perfect. I mean, like situationally, you found there were different different parts of your cultural experience that were better suited for what you needed to do. To do pitches, you needed to be direct. Um, but, you know, like we, we find that as well. Like when I was, uh, you know, early in my career, um, it was impressed upon me when working with executives, brevity is best, get to the point. Um, you know, nobody's got time to, you know, go through the, you know, the subtleties and the nuance, just say what you've got to say. And it's a very, it's a very North American thing. Um, mm -hmm. I at least find, I, I find it definitely more pronounced um, when I was working with colleagues in the U.S. than in Canada. We've got a kind of the same thing. It, some of us, some of the business communication here can be a little more relaxed. You might get away with an extra sentence, but it, it generally is. <laughs> but it is generally the same thing. Just get on with it. All right. But yeah. that, that suggests, you know, like when you peel it back and you say, why do I need to, you know, I might lose something there. I, you know, if I begin to truncate things in my language and how I express myself, I'm actually leaving it up to him to be able to figure out what I meant. And this is where we get into classic traps um, where we believe someone's done something or promised something or communicated something. And really, it was just the brain being exceptional at filling in a blank. And we set that pattern up. And why, why do executives need to work this way? It's because they have very little time to be able to process all the information that they need um, to go through a day because we created email and that's just destroyed our ability to actually focus on anything on any given day. Um, so we got to think about well, what, what can we do? One of the first things, and this brings up, God, we travel on, in this conversation, but one of the first okay. things that I encounter with, uh, with new coaches is I haven't got any time. And so the first thing that we've got to work on is how to figure out how to how for them to reclaim some of their own time because it's been given away to so many other people and so many other and so many other responsibilities. Uh, I can't begin to teach you how to begin to learn for yourself if you can't carve out an hour an or an hour and a half every day where we get to talk frankly. Um, if you delay that, if you say, Chris, I can only engage you for one or two hours once a week. Well, the kind of change that you're going to be able to do with that, while it's better than nothing, is going to be very, very slow because the the points where we're going to have feedback loops are going yep. to be delayed. And so much is going to have filtered in and we won't have solved any problems. So the first problem is how do we expand? What is the biggest bubble of time you can create for yourself where you can shut everything out and think and just think you're, you may read something, you might cognate on something deeply but it's free of other distractions. And then we're gonna begin on working to expand that inch by inch until we get ourselves a good sized bubble where we can spend very deep time because some of the things that are gonna come out of our conversations are gonna have nothing to do with the day-to-day -day pressures. It's going to be, how do I deal with um, my interaction with myself? How do I start thinking about my thinking to improve? And what am I going to apply these new ideas to, et cetera? That's going to come later, but I've got to start somewhere. I've got to build traction. Um, you know, so when I see that an executive is very harried and can't give me time, I'm like, well, that's the system you're in, right? I mean, like I, I may not be able to change that. So I'm going to work with you. I'll start with the square inch of time. 
And then we're going to see how big we can make that because if you right. really want to improve, I've got to do this. It, the this idea you you you're you're um, you're, you're you're mentioning it is um, you, you've, uh, you've you've uh, there's been a, a number of of um, of, of, of uh, points where we we kind of talk, talk, yeah talk about how the system sort of formulate the people within um, within them and and how. Um, in particular, you, you talked about how executives, right, um, have less freedom as they go up, where, whereas they actually should have more freedom. Which I actually, this is something I, I, I'm a big sort of uh, Elon Musk sort of fan. You know, I, I tell people like if I was a basketball player, I'd be idolizing Michael Jordan. I guess I'm <laughs> an entrepreneur, so what do you expect? Um, yeah. And um, the um, what I see is that he is, you know, a complete maverick, right? So my, my, one of my favorite CNBC uh, segments. Uh, which I watched on YouTube mostly to walk, but like, st still I, I consume some of that content. Was uh, you know Elon Musk is the richest man in the world? Is he finally gonna start behaving properly? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> like everybody else. <laughs> um, but the, the, the thing you see him like being a complete maverick, and and I think there's something really important to that, and I think he defends that extremely strongly, like that he has complete freedom of action. Um, I hadn't really thought of it in the organizational tree uh, structure of, um, you know, maybe it, it, as you are new and maybe working more directly, you are more constrained because you are absorbing where you're learning more, right? But as you learn, you're able to re-express and therefore you should have more, uh, more, more, more range. I think there's something really, really important in that. And I don't, I don't exactly know how to apply it, but it feels uh, really fundamental. Yeah. Well, it, you know, again, this comes back to, how you're innovating, designing the operating system for Belina, how um, we're learning about how people work in accordance with the system that they're in. So some, you know, a large part of our conversation really revolves around that kind of nucleus that we respond to stimuli in the containing system. So in traditional hierarchy, that dictates certain behaviors of uh, certain patterns of behavior. This is the, uh, when we had our original conversation, when I brought up, uh, Deming's preface to the new economics, where he says this book is for people working under the tyranny of the prevailing style of management and how he calls it a prison that we have created for ourselves. It's not something fixed. We did it to ourselves. So when I say that we lose degrees of freedom inside of a hierarchical structure, that's by design. That's why you see when most, um, most people ascend into the C-suite, the first thing that they've got to do is do a reorg of some kind. Um, and, and it's literally because that's all they can do. <laughs> that's how you make your mark. This time it's gonna it's gonna work. And I've 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 worked in, with uh, some organizations where, you know, like I had a gig for um, this, it didn't even get off the ground. It it got stillborn because they literally while I was talking with the I think it was a VP I was going to be working with, and they were about to have reorg number three right under his feet. And he says, I haven't got time to talk to you. And I'm like, I don't blame you. You wouldn't. I mean, like the, the sea has changed one more time. So when, when that's all you have the ability to respond to, you know, like you're going to set a grand vision, you're going to say, this is how the sea will be parted. And, and this is what, you know, this is how I shall command the boats. You know, that's what you get. And, and that's rather unfortunate, like finding leaders that um, understand this uh, differently. And this is what's really fun uh, in engaging with you is because you're different to the leaders that I've actually interacted with. Um, you're not predisposed to some of these I, this baggage. 
you do have some of that freedom that's built into what you're doing. And that's very, that's very apparent. Like, as I said, when we look, when I saw what you were writing in the, uh, in the Belina doc, I was like, wow, this is, this is really innovative because you're thinking very, very differently. You're not constrained by patterns and designs of the past. You're actually looking at how do I design something for the future? And you already have some very good ideas, um, some very good theory, and you're taking in a lot of different inputs to, in, to inform that. That's different. So your degrees of freedom, and I guess that's the, the benefit of being a founder. You've got a few more right now, but you know, you're eventually, if you succumb to the pressures of shaping your organization to satisfy some of those outside forces that you were talking about earlier, that's where your degrees of freedom are gonna to begin to close back in on you. What if, um... I mean, it, it very well might be that we're just swimming in the same water, right? Uh, but, uh, <laughs> what, I, what I've come to appreciate is that these incentives, they come and they introduce themselves to you and they smile. You know, it's kind of like a sympathy for the devil, the, the song, you know, like, allow me to introduce myself. Um, <laughs> but um, the uh, they're, they're short term. They're always short term. They're, they're like a, they're like a, they're, you know, a hit of steroids or, or, or something, right? Where you will get something, but you will lose something. And that's, and, and again, it comes back to metricalization, right? Like yeah. if you are looking for the number in the next quarter, you can sacrifice things next to that number, or you can sacrifice things after that number, right? You, the, the future is always the easiest thing to sacrifice because, you know, who's going to be there anyway, right? So, so, so or, yeah. or, you know, we'll figure it out when we get there. So you, can, you can always make up something, right? We need this right now, uh, no matter what. So, you know, I, I always find that uh, these pressures, when they appear, um, is really at um, what, um, the, the way around these pressures is to understand that whatever you're going to get, whatever they're offering you is short term. Um, the, and, and, and the true, um, I, this blog post I read actually, um, that I, I just keep, it keeps coming back to me. I don't even think it's on the internet anymore. I've looked for it and I can't find it. Um, but, um, it was talked, it was called taking happiness and passant, uh, which, oh, uh, cool. the French. um, but, um, basically the idea is in chess, there's like move you can make yeah. where you don't go straight, you go sideways, right? Um, yeah. But you kill the thing in front of you. Uh, I'm just describing it for the audience because I didn't. Uh, I had to look it up. Um, so you basically, instead of going in, into the same square as your pawn, or as your your opponent, where you you take them off the the, the board, you actually go diagonally, but you still uh, take the uh, the, uh, the uh, pawn. Um, and and the metaphor that that blog post was making that is that happiness is like that. Is the sort of thing you cannot acquire directly like nobody gets out of bed and says today i will be happy and then they are happy like you can take some drugs maybe and they'll make you happy for a little bit but that's it's going to fade and it probably is going to be worse um but but a lot of people become happy by finding something that that really matters to them and, and and devoting themselves to it right so it's weird you get the thing that everybody wants by not going after it and i think that is um i think that is sort of the universal rule for a lot of Things that you know you cannot go as the crow flies. There are boundaries. You're going to hit a wall, right? You yep. have to actually navigate, um, and the navigation does not suggest itself to you. It's not. There's no. There's no arrows or anything like that. And and really, the the real path to that thing is to follow some other. Like it's a, you, the, the 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 gradient you have to follow. It's yep. not the the metric you're looking for is not the metric that you're 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 going after. Um, and uh, this is something that I, it's just over and over again. Like you look at the, you know, some of the richest people in the world, 
are technology entrepreneurs, right? I, I, I have a hard time believing that um, they started and said, I want to make a lot of money, right? What do I do to make a lot of money, right? Uh, they said, yep. I love technology, I love innovation, I love whatever, yep. Yep. Uh, ended up extremely rich. Um, so I just think there's a very big class of such things that everybody wants. And the achievement of those things is not um, linear. It's, it's not like direct. You, you, you can't, they cannot be had by those who seek them. <laughs> Yeah. So, no, I... so, yeah. So, this is where, you know, at Palena, at least we have principles, right? We talk about short term pain for long term gain. We talk about, uh, you know, thinking about all of the aspects of a system. And, and a lot of these things are come back to the fact that um, there are these little temptations that, that always show themselves and they're always false, but they always feel uh, right. So, yeah. but, but it comes back to, to what you were saying, actually, that, um, this is something that I've experienced directly, right? And and I know it to be true, but that's because of of, of things that I've that I've gone through. Um, and 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 the real question is like, how does that? You know, I I was perhaps lucky, right? Like having lived in these three three countries is not something I, I set out to do. It happened, right? And 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 now I yep. can see something that maybe is useful. Um, but the question is, how do you? How do we? Um, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not really looking at myself as a, as, a, as a model, but there's a lot of other people who have accomplished incredible things. Um, and you can either just wait for them to emerge and pluck them out of the population, right? That's one way to do it. But if you want to be a little bit more directed about it, that's to me like, designing sort of the, the, the feedback loops or the gradients that, that, that would produce what you want. I don't know what it looks like. I know it's not an MBA. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, that's what I've come to, to recognize. I've got friends who have MBAs and none of them are using the, you know, using it for what it was intended. Yeah. It, it ended up being an accoutrement on the resume. You know, they're doing other things. Um, now, did they gain something out of the experience? Sure. I had really interesting conversations. Uh, my best man uh, for my wedding, he, he did an MBA. Um, and I used to have incredible conversations with him about what he was actually learning versus the reality, you know, and it, 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 it was astonishing. There, it was a very big disconnect. He did learn some stuff about how to read, you know, balance sheets, P&Ls and how, you know, corporate structures work. But he had like, for example, an assignment where it was, uh, I think it was, they had to spec out an SAP installation. And I said, I said, so did you get an estimate on what it's going to take to do that? Okay, so just take that estimate and conservatively double it. That's what that's what's going to happen in an SAP uh, implementation. He's like, really? You know, yeah, yeah. They just look at the industry figures. Um, there's a reason why these things go sideways. What is the point of it? What is the aim uh, and purpose of a consultancy? It is not necessarily to help you solve problems. It's to establish a footprint in your organization to continually sell you solutions, um, some of which you may not actually need. Um, right. So when you when you get hired to be an SAP consultant, be aware that you know like that you're not just there to help them implement a pro, a solution. You're there to go and see what other parts of the organization could benefit from more SAP. <laughs> there's no there's nothing that an SAP implementation can't solve, but um, I think what you, what, what you're communicating here is, is, is quite good. Um, I like the idea of the en passant, uh, capture that you are obtaining, uh, joy and you're, you're, you're obtaining, uh, this, this sense of fulfillment and pride, uh, not as going for the thing, but kind of getting it in passing. 
Um, it's the consequence of, yep. of all the interactions. I, I think that that's just, that's perfect. I mean, like that is actually it. And, it, and I think to arrive at this, when you talk about gradients and, and influences, I think that it takes a certain kind of experience to reach this point in your life. So selling these ideas um, to somebody who's a new graduate, who's been taught in the prevailing style of management is very difficult because they haven't had the knocks. They haven't had the experiences that tell them why these certain things are not desirable and how they keep you from uh, obtaining what you want. Uh, they will misdirect you. They will confound you, disappoint you, demoralize you. And, you know, you only have to point to how many people do we know that were in, in investment banking that decided to go become bakers and artisans. Um, they took what they earned. They said, you know, that's fine. I cut bait and I'm, I'm doing my own thing now. You know, like that, that yeah. just wasn't satisfying for me. I wonder why that occurred. You know, and I, right. I don't under, I, that just tells me that something's happened to the profession and how we treat people in these organizations. And that's something I'd like to help change. I'm a little bit realistic that, you know, it's my little dent in the universe to try and help a few. We'll see what happens. All right. I think uh, this is uh, as, as good a point as any. Uh, I feel like we could keep talking for uh, for another two hours or, or, or 20, really, at this point. Um, <laughs> but uh, we got we got to draw a line somewhere. Uh, yep. So, yep. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for, for, for your time. This is just I, I think I'm going to be thinking about this conversation for another week or two. Um, it this is a, a full intellectual meal. I, I met, this may be a podcast for an audience of one, but I <laughs> Maybe, maybe, but boy, I, I had a lot of, I've had so much fun. Our two conversations now, God, let's, let's, let's keep this ball rolling. Maybe, and maybe have Absolutely. more focus, have more focused conversations next time. We can attempt it, but I, <laughs> <laughs> Somehow, something tells me that. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. Um, yeah. Okay. So thank you so much. Uh, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll do this again, uh, one way or another. Uh, again, very, very happy to have met you. Um, and, uh, thanks, thanks for all the all, all the uh, sort of gems of of, of wisdom. So thanks. No, no worries. Let me make a final plug before before I sign off. Oh, I've got absolutely yes. Where can people a, find I've, you? How do they get yeah. more 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 of this? So you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Chris R. Chapman. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is Derailier Agile. So it's Derailier like the bicycle part, A G I L E. Um, and I've also got a blog on Substack that's called digestibledeming.substack.com, um, where basically you subscribe to this and twice a week, Mondays and Fridays, I publish a little blurb that takes a segment of Deming and makes it digestible for you. I take a few quotes, we talk about uh, an example, a story, and ask a couple of questions, and then that's how you can get some of this goodness too. Fantastic. All right. Um, we will we will put all these links in the uh, description below, sideways, whatever you're listening to this, and uh, find the accompanying text, and you'll find these uh, these links as well. Uh, Chris, th thanks once again. Uh, thank you. My pleasure. All right, you made it to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening or watching, whichever you prefer. We totally appreciate the support. Catch full episodes and interviews and little clips on our YouTube channel. You can also subscribe to the Belena podcast on most popular podcast apps. Once again, thank you so much. Take care out there.